0: Tonight we continue our series entitled "Mercy's Embrace during this Lenten season and we come to this parable in Luke chapter 15 which we will spend the next three Sundays in together. What is probably the most well-known story that Jesus ever told and its popularity is well-deserved honestly because it takes us to the heart of Christianity, to the heart of the Christian faith and to the heart of a God of grace, of great grace. You know, here at Church of the Cross, we talk about having a culture of gracious intentionality. Which means, first, that we want to be a place that celebrates and lives out of the grace of God. That has a spirit of party and celebration because of all that God has done for us and is doing for us um, through his grace. And the question that Jesus is putting before his hearers in this story and through the two stories that preceded about a lost sheep and a lost coin... Is this question, is the grace of God truly central in your life and the life of your community? Is this at the center? I know that you say that you prioritize grace, but is this really the central reality of your hearts and of your lives? Does this animate your life? Does it define your relationships with others? Does this shape your thinking and your living more than anything else in the world? Now, there were ample reasons to believe that Jesus' original audience, who was the Pharisee, were the Pharisees and the scribes that we read out of verses 1 and 2, um, that this was not the case for them. They're grumbling, in fact, about the fact that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. That's what we read about in verse 2. They're having trouble with the representation of God's kingdom that is set before them in Jesus' practice. And it's this grumbling that provokes Jesus then to tell these three stories that are related to one another. This isn't the only time that the Pharisees have this grumbling and this issue before Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, they say the same thing. And Jesus responds to them there in this way. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus understands that none of us, as creatures of God, will ever understand or prioritize the grace of God in our lives until we see the degree to which we have rebelled from the love that God has for us. But when we do see that, then and only then will our hearts be changed and will new life actually come into us and begin to flow out of us as his people. Then we will love. As God has loved us. Then we will celebrate the good news of all that God has done. Then we will feast as people who delight in the love and the grace of our King. So that's what this story is about. It's an invitation to us to consider our own rebellion and lostness juxtaposed with the pursuing and costly love of God. It's an invitation to get to the heart of the Christian faith and the Christian story. It's an invitation to come alive. To each one of us, whether we've been walking with Jesus for some time, or whether we're only at the beginning of that walk, or perhaps even quite skeptical and just kind of asking questions about who Jesus is. This story presents an invitation to each one of us, wherever it is that we might be on this walk of faith. So, Jesus in this story shows us two kinds of rebellion the rebellion of those who stay near the elder brother, and the rebellion of those who go far away, the younger brother. They're both lost. And their respective states of being lost, though very different in appearance, are actually two branches from the very same tree. And we'll begin to see that over the coming weeks. Tonight, we're going to focus in on act one of this story and the younger brother who features in Act 1, in his particular rebellion and his particular struggles. Next week, we'll look more closely at the surprising and more subtle and yet perhaps more dangerous rebellion of the elder brother that comes to light in Act 2. And of course, throughout our look at this parable over the next three weeks, the focus is not on the younger brother. It's not on the elder brother, but it's on the father. And we'll finish our time there in a few weeks, but we'll have that in mind as we walk through this together. So tonight we're going to look at the, the younger brother in the story. And as we do, we'll see three phases to his life here in Act 1. First, the active rebellion. Second, the end or the fruit of that rebellion. And then thirdly, the partial but misguided return of the younger brother. So first, the active rebellion. Verses 12 and 13. The first details in the story show us that the younger brother's Uh, they show us the younger brother's open and egregious rebellion from his father. And there's more than meets the eye to this story. By Jewish law, a father would certainly at one point divide his estate among his sons. But importantly, this would happen at the father's initiative. So for the younger son to initiate in verse 12 as he comes to his father and says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. For the younger son to initiate this request with his father is basically to show that he was impatient for his father's death. This was a kind of death wish for his father. Father, I don't care about you. Give me what is mine. Give me what I really want. And it gets worse We read in verse 13, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. To gather up all that he had means that he had to liquidate all of his father's assets. That portion of the estate which had been given to him. In that culture, in that day, wealth was stored up in the land that one possessed. And one's livelihood and identity were tied up. They were bound up for the whole family with the land that they possessed. So the younger brother takes that portion of the land which is his and sells it off. And as he does so, this would have driven a dagger into the heart of his father, his brother, and his entire family. He was significantly altering their lives and their futures by this kind of impetuous action. And for them, for his family, for his brother and his father and for the family, this was a staggering loss to undergo. That would utterly change the way they lived. And also, this wasn't happening in isolation. In village life in the Middle East, the villagers would have been very aware of what was going on in this story, in this family's life. Most people knew one another's business, and in hastily liquidating a portion of his family's estate, the son was bringing great shame upon his family, and his father in particular, in the village. He was humiliating them before others. But the son goes on with his plans. He liquidates the assets. And then it says that he takes a journey. And the word there for taking a journey has the literal sense of leaving his own. It's Luke's only use of this word. So by his actions, the younger brother cuts himself off from his father and his family. And in Middle East village life, the family was your social security, your insurance, your, age old, age old, pen, your old age pension, your assurance of marriage and physical and emotional well-being. And the younger son trades all of this and strikes out on his own, taking the passing for the permanent. So the question is why? Why is it that the younger son makes such a move? As a younger brother in this wealthy family, he was entitled to the security and the blessing. Of his family's estate, of his father's estate. Sure, not as the sole master of the estate, but as part of the father's family with a significant role. But he throws all of this away in a matter of a few days. Why? And in, in answering and wrestling with this question, we get to some of the central dynamics of sin at work in any kind of human heart or rebellion. There is this lust for control. The son had a part to play, but it wasn't one of unhampered control. When he asks for his share, he plays his hand to his father and to his family. I want control. I want to be my own boss. I want to call the shots. I'm tired of your influence over my life. I want to be on my own. But the desire for control is built upon an even deeper and more fundamental lie in our lives. It's the lie that says, I know best. I understand best. How to attain life. How to attain the good life. So I, with my own two eyes, can see more clearly. I'm the only one who really knows what I need. And who of us doesn't know the power of this lie in our own lives? To be The determiners of what brings us life. Blaise Pascal said this. He said, Man is quite capable of the most extravagant opinions, since he is capable of believing that he is not naturally and inevitably weak, but is, on the contrary, naturally wise. We all think that we're naturally wise, and we all know a little bit of what this younger brother is demonstrating here that we think we know what's best for our lives. And the corollary of saying that I know best gets us to the root cause, the root issue in all of rebellion, which is quite simply saying, God, you don't know best. You don't know what brings me life. All sin can at one level be summarized by simply saying that it is mistrusting God. Mistrusting God. It's saying that God is not a life giver who has our best and our highest in mind. But rather that God is a repressive, uptight schoolmaster who never wants his kids to laugh and to play. It's God the killjoy versus all of us who know what we really need to make life work. And to make ourselves feel good. Go back to the beginning for just a minute. To the garden. The garden of Eden. And we see that this is how the serpent twists The prohibition that God has put on eating from the one tree. It's a ploy, don't you see? It's a ploy to keep you from attaining your highest potential as human beings. That's the argument from the very beginning. This lack of trust is abundantly evident in the younger brother's demand for his portion of his father's estate. So with mistrust of God and with a sense that we know better, younger brothers take control and run far away and live it up on our own terms. We take those bits of creation which have been entrusted to us and we go our own way at our own pace. Thank you very much, God, but I've got a better plan. We move to Vegas. We buck the system. And that's what the younger brother did. But this opening act of the parable invites us to ask, secondly and briefly, another question. And that question is this, where did this get him? Where does this younger brother type of rebellion that thrusts God out of the picture and goes its own way, where did this get him? Where does this get us? What was the fruit of this rebellion in his life? What had promised abundant life to him, this way that he saw fit? was anything but that, wasn't it? He spent it all and encountered then a famine in a far off country. The younger brother is hungry and he's in need, we get this picture. His own way hasn't worked. But instead of returning home, the shame and the humiliation that await him there are far too much for him him to face. He makes another plan of his own, doesn't he? And this is a bit like Our rebellion as well. Having run our own way for a while. We may feel the emptiness. We may feel it not quite measuring up. But we're not willing to come home. We'll do anything but turn that way. We'll turn to another plan of our own making. However humiliating it may be. So this man takes up the most humiliating place. That he could as a Jewish man. To start feeding the swine. Working among pigs. No Jewish man. Particularly one of means. Whatever Touch, come close to, or own a pig. And yet he takes this place to show what kind of a deep descent he has made. It doesn't get much lower than this. We could say he hit rock bottom at this point. You know, could we ask for any more powerful picture of the impotence of going our own way to bring us what it promises than this picture of the younger son? In this place. Turning away from the Father is always, ten times out of ten, a turn from life to death. And this is an illustration, a powerful illustration of this kind of fruit, of this choice from Malcolm Mugridge's life, as told by Ravi Zacharias in his book, Can Man Live Without God? And this is how Zacharias recounts Muggridge's story. He says, Working as a journalist in India. Mugridge left his residence one evening to go to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from the nearby village who had come to have her bath. Mugridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment and temptation stormed into his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam the harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her, and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into significance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. He quotes Muggeridge, She was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Mugridge trembling, and muttering. Running out on our own way, seeking to undo the inhibitions that we have felt for a long time, encountering a face of death. The fruit of this kind of rebellion. Thirdly, the misguided plan, something changes in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Now most of us who've heard this story uh, for some time, think of this phrase coming to himself as one of repentance. But I want to challenge that understanding a little bit tonight and say that that's probably going a bit too far. We do in fact see a start in the right direction. This young younger brother sees that the father has what he needs, but the younger brother is not driven at this point by love, but by his hunger. By his hunger, this is not yet repentance, but it's a belly-driven plan. He's starving, and he needs something to eat. And he, at this point, is a good illustration of what Paul describes in Philippians 3.19 that we heard read. Their God is their belly. And this pain and this need overcomes his resistance to the humiliation that he knows he will face when he sets out for home and he turns to go home. He's still holding on to control. He now knows that he's damaged goods, in fact. And he knows that he's not good enough to be a son. But he goes to the father with a plan. And with terms for his relationship with his father. I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 19. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So that I can eat. And maybe possibly I can begin to repay the debt, the financial debt that I've put myself in with my father. But it's still a plan. Do you see the plan? I'm going to come and I'm going to tell my father what the terms will be of our future relationship. I'm going to propose those to him. So even in his desperation at this rock bottom point, he's still at some level in control. And we know this kind of reasoning in our own lives. After a a life perhaps or a period perhaps or even just a moment of younger brotherish rebellion, we will say, God, I know that I've made a mess in my life, but I can do better. I can make it up to you. And when I do, then you'll see that I'm worthy. I'm, I'm really not as bad as I've shown myself to be in these past months or years. God, just give me one more chance. It's misguided. It's coming to God with a plan for how I will be restored. It's still trying to earn a place in his family, in a relationship with him. And even in our shame, there is pride lurking around in our hearts devising plans and setting terms. And so with this plan in his heart, the younger brother says in verse 20, in verse uh, 18, I will arise and go To my father. And he goes. Hungry. And ashamed. But even at the edge of the village. He is still lost. Still lost. And if we've made bargains. And arrangements like that with God. We are still lost too. So act one is bringing us then to this point. This critical point. How will the father respond to such a rebel? Having been grieved and shamed and dishonored before the family and before the village. What will be the outcome of this meeting as the son makes his way? From our perspective and no doubt from the perspective of Jesus' original audience. There is no hope for the son. He has blown it. He's way too far gone. Every expectation of first century fathers would suggest that this is a hopeless, dead-end situation for this man, for this son. But shockingly, for all of us who encounter this story, the father sees him while he's still a long way off. Feels compassion for him and then runs out to meet him, embraces him, and kisses him. One thing we have to understand is that in the Middle East, men of stature did not run. To run in that culture meant that you would have to literally gird up your loins because you wore these long robes and you'd have to pick them up. And in doing that, in picking them up, you'd have to show some of your legs, which was a very humiliating thing. No man of stature, no man of honor would take that kind of step upon himself. But he does it. And he runs and embraces And kisses his son. And the son makes his speech. But significantly only makes the first part of his speech. Father I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He drops the bit about being made a hired servant. And this is incredibly significant in the parable. Because what? Now he's placed himself. Now he's placed himself. Entirely into the hands of his gracious father. And he's abandoned his plans and his terms. And put himself entirely in the fate of the father's hands. And it was the love of the father. The lavish grace and love of the father. That enabled him to lay down control. And relinquish himself. Completely. To his father's plan. And his father's plan is overwhelming. It's to have him, the rebel, as a son. That would be the father's only terms for his relationship with this man. Not the hired servant that he was going to bargain to become, but a son. And so the father brings the robe, the best robe, and he brings the ring, and he brings the shoes to welcome this son back into the family. And then he throws a gigantic party and he kills the fattened calf Which would have been way too much meat for just a family to eat. It would have fed dozens if not scores of people. So it's very clear that his intent is to invite the entire village into this celebratory party. Why? Because this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's the father's suffering in the early part of this story. He's unwilling to disown his son. He goes ahead with the plan of dividing up his share and giving his assets to his son. It's his suffering in the beginning that keeps open the door for possible reconciliation. And it's the father shaming of himself at this point in the story, running out to meet his son in the outskirts of the village. All of the village would have seen this happening. All of the village would have been watching this exchange taking place. He breaks all the customs of Oriental patriarchy in doing so and welcomes his son into the family as a son. This is a picture of redemptive suffering at the heart of this story. It's a picture that is completed in the cross of Jesus Christ. The father loves at great cost to himself to take dead things And make them alive. Rebellion is met with reconciling love. Mistrust is met with embrace. Shame is transferred from the guilty to the innocent. Famine is transformed into feasting. Humiliation is replaced with honor. This is grace. Abundant, overflowing grace. And imagine the feeling of the younger son to... To come expecting to grovel and to pity himself and to prostrate himself, to be embraced and kissed and affirmed and welcomed into the family of the father that he is shamed. You know that longing that you have to be okay? You know that longing that you have to be loved, to be embraced, to be brought in to something of meaning? That you forever don't feel worthy of. That you're afraid that no one, if they really, really knew you, would ever give to you. The Father, in an act of humiliating mercy, meets you in that deepest place of need. Embraces you. Kisses you. And welcomes you home. This is what rebels like us need above all. This is the heart of the Christian faith. This is the heart of the story. The road home is an open highway for rebels like you and me. They were flocking to Jesus. We need to know that God loves us without condition. No sinful path in our lives is too insulting, too grave, too uh, to put us out of reach of his amazing love. It you is know, so many times as a pastor i 've heard p- people say have had them say to me that god could how could God ever love me i don 't feel worthy of that love, knowing what i 've done, knowing who I am I, I have such a hard time seeing myself as a recipient of such amazing grace that God offers. And I'd much rather be a hired servant. But God will not have it any other way. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. It's this amazing grace and love that meets our rebellion. That alone has the power to melt our mistrust of the Father. To change our hearts from a place of mistrust and suspicion to a place of glad and open and free submission before one so loving and so gracious and so merciful as this. And it enables us to see the plans that he has for us are not to repress us, but to bless, to prosper, to make us alive. And when we see this grace, when we encounter this grace, this is what makes us a community of grace, of graciousness to all. Amen.